A little more music to come uh, at the end of our chapel time together. But for now, we want to go back to the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. So uh, grab your Bible or turn on your Bible, whichever is the case, and uh, look back at Isaiah 53. As we have been saying uh, the last uh, couple of times in our series, no other, no other Old Testament passage presents the deity, the humanity, the rejection, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, the exaltation, the intercession, and the final glory of the Messiah, servant of Jehovah, as powerfully and completely comprehensively as this chapter does. In fact, there is no other chapter in all the Old Testament that even approaches the edges of this prophetic revelation. It is unparalleled and it is 700 years before the Lord Jesus even appeared. It's a comprehensive presentation, a detailed one, a complete one that gives us all we need really to understand about the revelation of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It covers his entire career and the significance of his death and resurrection. Now we have been looking at it starting in chapter 52, verse 13 and following. Um, we have been giving you a little bit of an outline, not a kind of hard and fast outline, but we started out with the startling servant, and then the scorned servant as we came into chapter 53, and then the substituted servant. We looked at that last time, verses 4 through 6. And now for uh, the next point, I want you to think about the submissive servant. And we'll pick up the text in verse 7. There is a lot to say, uh, more than we can possibly cover in our time this morning in chapel, but we'll, uh, we'll make a run at it. Look at verses 7 through 9 where we come to the submissive servant. The Jews, of course, as you remember, and uh, you know that historically as well as the fact that we've talked about it, um, have considered Jesus uh, since He first arrived and down to this day. They've considered Him the victim of His own failures, uh, the weak loser in a battle with um, divine forces, a religion as represented by the leaders of Israel. They look at Him as a target of divine wrath because of his blasphemies. He is, uh, to the Jewish people, a man caught in a web of circumstances that he essentially wove for himself. His life got out of control. He was unable to find a way out, and he ended up getting what he deserved because he had blasphemed God. That's their view. That's still the view, the official view of Judaism. But the truth is that no one did anything to him that was not planned by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and agreed upon by the Son. He yielded submissively to God's purpose, which was always and only his desire and his joy. 
And in fact, in all of this text of Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, the servant never speaks, never speaks, says nothing. He allows everything to happen to him prophetically here, and that's how it played out when he arrived 700 years later. Let's look at his submission, starting in verse 7, and looking first of all at his trial. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah looks at the trial of our Lord. He was oppressed. That can refer, of course, to physical brutality. He was subjected, as you know, to physical brutality. But it goes beyond that. He was oppressed judicially, you could say. He had a mock trial. He was unjustly convicted. It was an outrageous miscarriage of justice. It was, in every sense, a mockery of justice. The Jews were never allowed to have trials in the middle of the night. They were required to have witnesses. There were none. He was arrested in the garden. He was taken to the high priest's house. He was falsely accused. He was falsely indicted in the middle of the night. He was targeted by lying testimony. He was sent to Herod, sent to Pilate, sent back to Pilate in a final effort to validate the supposed crime, and the verdict of Pilate stated six times, I find no fault in him, not guilty. Pilate was a Roman judge. Still, the Jewish leaders wanted him dead, pushed by hatred. They began to blackmail Pilate into a Roman execution after six declarations of the innocence of Jesus. Through it all, the, uh, the abuse was verbal, it was physical, and it was legal abuse. But he submitted it to it all. Isaiah 50, verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters. In John 10, 18, he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. It was, on all accounts, a devastating oppression and affliction. He was, back in 52, verse 14, marred, as you remember, more than any man, mutilated, distorted in face and form, more than any man. But he did it all willingly. Look at the word afflicted there in verse 7. It's a passive verb in Hebrew, and it literally says he allowed himself to be afflicted, or he submitted to affliction. 
The verb can also mean to humble oneself, and that's how it's used in Exodus 10.3. Paul may actually have had this in mind when he wrote Philippians 2.8, where he talks about Christ coming into the world and humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant and being obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. I don't need to remind you, but I will anyway. Normally, an oppressed and tortured person who knows this is unjust cries out regarding his innocence. Cries out with regard to the injustice being perpetrated on him, but not the servant of Jehovah. It says, in verse 7, yet he did not open his mouth. Silence under such horrific suffering and beating and even leading to execution on the cross. Silence is just rare from innocent people. Even the guilty people would like to proclaim their innocence if they could, by that proclamation, avoid the pain, suffering, and execution. Sufferers in the Old Testament, for example, are not silent. You have, the, you have the lamenting, the voice, and the cry of even the guilty in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And then in the book of Job, you have the constant cry of the innocent. Why is this happening? I haven't done anything. Job repeatedly tells his friends, and even asks God. But here, the servant of Jehovah, the Messiah, the Son of God, is hunted, arrested, ill-treated, tortured, tormented, harassed, abused, led to execution. There is no resistance. No resistance before the high priest. No resistance before the chief priests and the elders that made up the Sanhedrin. No resistance before Pilate. No resistance before Herod. No resistance at all. He is led, verse 7 says, like a lamb to slaughter. Very familiar to the Jews. Uh, lambs were slaughtered every day, in the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. If you were a priest, you were essentially a butcher. That's what you did. You cut the throat of, of lambs. That's your career. It was a daily bloodbath of sheep, lambs being sacrificed, killed for sacrifice as well as killed for consumption. Eventually, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Further expressing the same thing, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. Sheep are silent when they are sheared, and sheep go silently, lambs go silently to their own execution. The Jewish people knew that. They saw it on a daily basis. So he did not open his mouth. This is the submissive, silent sufferer. This is exactly what happened 700 years later. He notably remarkably, astonishingly, accepted the unrighteous judgment of men, but did so to embrace the righteous judgment 
of God on behalf of unrighteous sinners. No sacrifice was ever so pure. No substitution was ever so perfect. No sacrifice like this without sin, perfectly acceptable to God. He dies for sinners. This is the promise in this verse. The suffering, silent, slaughtered servant goes to death without a word. Verse 8 then begins to look at his death. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. That's legal terminology. Oppression means arrest, confinement, judgment, due process of law, judicial proceeding. The verdict is given. He is taken away from the court, the trial, to fulfill the sentence. Pilate orders his execution by crucifixion, which is what the Jewish leaders want. And he was, verse 8 says, cut off out of the land of the living. That is simply an Old Testament explanation for a violent death. He's executed. He is executed. Not just pierced, not just crushed as we've seen earlier, not just punished, not just scourged, not just oppressed, not just afflicted, but murdered, killed. Daniel 9.26, the prophet Daniel said that Messiah would be cut off. Daniel predicted the death of Christ 483 years later from the decree of Artaxerxes. This would put the execution of Jesus in about 30 A.D., exactly when Jesus was executed. And then this most compelling word in verse 8, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? Nobody cared. He was violently, illegally executed. And who saw it for what it was? Who tried to stop it? Who complained? Who protested? Who interrupted the illegal proceedings? Who stepped in? Custom prevailed among the Jews in the case of trials that led to a death sentence. Time was to be given before the execution so that some people would have the opportunity to speak in defense of this individual in case they had evidence the court had not heard. Time had to pass. It didn't. What does it say? From judgment, he was taken away and killed immediately. There's no time. The Holy Spirit reveals that to Isaiah. In retrospect, if you pick up a Jewish Talmud, turn to folio 43 on the Sanhedrin, you will read this. There is a tradition, says the Jewish Talmud, on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover, they hung Jesus. That's the tradition. 
The Talmud goes on, and the herald went forth before him for forty days, crying, Jesus goes to be executed because he has practiced sorcery and seduced Israel and estranged them from God. Let anyone who can bring forward any justifying plea for him to come and give information concerning it. But no justifying plea was found for him, and so he was hung on the eve of the Sabbath and the Passover. Talk about revisionist history. The Talmud says they gave 40 days between the trial and the execution of Jesus for people to speak in His defense, and no one had a word to say. What a massive lie. Nobody believed. Back in verse 1, who believed? Nobody. In verse 3, He was despised, forsaken of men. He was despised, the end of verse 3. We had no regard for Him. The Sanhedrin, according to the Jewish Talmud, sits to justify and not condemn, to save life and not destroy. This, says one writer, is humane in calling upon those who know anything in favor of the accused to come and declare it. That was not observed in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. The proceedings were fast and furious. No one cared. No one came to his defense. He went from judgment to execution. And as for his whole generation, who cared? Where were the disciples? Where was anybody? But Isaiah knows why. Isaiah knows why. End of verse 8. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Could be translated this way. For the wickedness of my people, punishment fell on him. The smiter is actually... Jehovah, not the Romans. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He submitted to the injustice of men in order to submit to the justice of God. He submitted, he submitted to the violent, vicious hatred of men in order to submit to the love of the Father. This is again the great center of the gospel there at the end of verse 8. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, substitutionary atonement, vicarious atonement, He takes our place. Please notice, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, there is in that sentence a critically important doctrine, and it is the doctrine of particular redemption. He is an actual atonement for His people, not a potential atonement. If you say, Christ died for the whole world, but it only, it only applies if you believe, 
then in reality, he didn't, he didn't accomplish anything. He just made something potential. Jesus did not die a potentially applicable death. He, says in verse 8, died for the transgression of not everybody, but my people. It was an actual atonement. It was a specific substitution. He actually paid the penalty for all the sins of all the people who will ever believe. He knows who they are. They are the chosen of God. Jesus provided a real atonement for His people and not an, a potential atonement. You cannot conclude that He did the same thing for the people in hell that He does for the people in heaven. But if all you have is a potential atonement, then He did the same thing for the people in hell that He did for the people in heaven. The people in hell just didn't cash in on it. It becomes a non-atonement. An incomplete atonement. Theologians who understand the nature of the atonement know that it's an actual atonement for His people. The Jews knew the man Jesus was struck dead. They, they thought He was a blasphemer. But what have we been learning? The day is going to come when the words here... The verbs, again, are they, they're all in the past tense. That's why I say it's not a prophecy of Jesus. It's a prophecy of the salvation of Israel at the end of the age when they look back on Jesus and they get it right. And they say He was oppressed and afflicted, etc., etc. One day they're going to know why. They're going to know that as this confession will express, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, scourged for our healing. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And again, in verse 8, for the transgression of my people, He was struck. He is submissive all the way to death. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He died with two thieves, one on each side. Uh, the Romans didn't bury criminals. They uh, let them hang on the cross until the birds destroyed their flesh as a warning not to violate Roman power or authority. They took the corpse down eventually. There's a lot of indication that they threw it in the city dump. That's what should have happened to him. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Gehenna, what was left of the corpse thrown in the fire that burned all the time in the Jerusalem city dump in the valley of Hinnom. Jesus could have ended up there like the other criminals. But something very strange happened. Yet, verse 9, he was with a rich man in his death. Out of nowhere appears a secret disciple, Joseph of Arimathea, goes to Pilate, a secret disciple who didn't want to expose himself as a disciple of Jesus when Jesus was alive. And now when Jesus has been crucified as a criminal, he's willing to expose himself 
greater danger than ever now because Jesus is a known criminal and associating with him could be very dangerous. The Lord works on his heart. He steps up. You know the story. He takes the body of Jesus and he puts the body of Jesus in his own tomb in which nobody had ever laid. That was very important because his tomb was right near where Jesus was crucified and they had to get him in the ground on Friday so he would be in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday as he said, three days. You see the word death for the first time in verse 9. He was with a rich man in his death. Fascinating. This in Hebrew is a plural. This is a plural. As it is in Exodus 28, it's a plural. It doesn't mean that Messiah is going to die many times, it is a Hebrew superlative idiom used to emphasize the death of all deaths. This, is, this can't even be confined to the solo word death. It is such a massive death that you have to refer to it in the plural. Most unjust and yet the most just the most painful and yet the most powerful, the most hateful and yet the most loving. You have to use a plural. But he ended up in the tomb of a rich man. Why? Verse 9, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is a small testimony to his sinless perfection, and the first indication of a step up. Everything to this point has been down. Now we know it's going to turn because of chapter 52, verse 14, he was marred, we get that, but 15, he will startle many nations, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. We know the ending is all glorious. This is the first step up. He doesn't end up in the dump. He doesn't end up thrown on the garbage heap. There was no violence, no violation of God's law, no deceit. No violence would mean evil or wrong behavior, no deceit, evil or wrong words. God honors Jesus in His burial. He doesn't let Him get thrown into hell, as it were. Small step up. He's buried in a, a rich man's tomb. Because there was no sin on the inside of Him, no sin on the outside of Him. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot, 1 Peter 1.19. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We, we see that one step up. And then it becomes more glorious. We come in verse 10 through 12 to the final stanza. Uh, we, could, we could spend uh, many days just on this one. We've talked about the startling servant, the scorned servant, the substituted servant, the submissive servant. Um, 
let's talk about the satisfied servant. The satisfied servant. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, since he would render himself as a guilt offering. Again, it reiterates that his death is a sacrifice for sinners, a guilt offering. All the Jews knew what a guilt offering was, what a trespass offering was. It was a substitutionary symbol of the fact that the wages of sin was death, but that God was willing to accept a substitute. No animal substitute ever sufficed, and that's why they were slaughtered in the millions over the history of Israel because no sacrifice ever accomplished redemption. They all simply reiterated the inadequacy of an animal sacrifice. That's why they all hoped and waited for the one perfect sacrifice that would take away sin. So he is that guilt offering. This is now the words of the Jews. Let's keep these words in their mouth. Verse 10, this is a future generation of Israelites saying the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief since he would render himself as a guilt offering. They finally understand the whole point of the sacrificial system and the arrival of the one true sacrifice who has perfected forever those that are set apart by God. They're going to see their whole sacrificial system culminating in the sacrifice of Christ. They're going to recognize that the Lord was pleased to crush Him, not for blasphemy, but for salvation. Their soteriology is finally going to be orthodox. They're actually going to become Calvinists. It's not for blasphemy. It's not that he was smitten of God and afflicted, as they say back in verse 4, for blasphemy. That's what they thought. While men were crushing him, as we saw in earlier words of the chapter, God was actually doing the crushing. He was God's Lamb. When Jesus is called the Lamb of God, by John the Baptist in John 1, when he says, Behold the Lamb of God, this is God's Lamb. This is the Lamb that God has chosen to be the sacrifice. And God, who finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18, God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked, finds all pleasure in the death of the righteous one. Because it is by the death of the righteous one that God brings about the redemption of of His elect. God's delight, God's pleasure is in crushing His own Son. Listen, God did not delight in His pain. God delighted in His accomplishment, in His purpose. God did not delight in His agony. God did not delight in His suffering. God delighted in His salvation. God delights in the effect of His death. When it says, 
put him to grief in verse 10. Literally, it means made him sick, sick with afflictions, externally and internally. God literally put him through incomprehensible, unimaginable agony. Not, as we said, the death of a martyr. Martyrs uh, die with songs on their lips, songs in their hearts. Lots of records of martyrs um, dying with a testimony of hope and anticipation of entering heaven. Our Lord's death doesn't have that. There are no hymns, no songs, none. Why? Listen, martyrs die under the sweet comforts of grace. Martyrs are ministered to by the Holy Spirit, Peter says. Martyrs die with a taste of heaven on their lips. Jesus died with a taste of hell. Jesus died under the relentless and unrelieved terrors of the law, and the law offers no comforts. There is no grace in hell, and there was no grace on Jesus when He suffered what all who will ever believe would have suffered in hell if He hadn't suffered it. It was all divine fury. It was all the law crushing Him violently. There was no comfort. And that's why you hear Him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No believer will ever die like that because He died like that in their place. When we come to death, we will know the sweet comforts of grace. Grace like you don't know until you get there. So these confessing Jews in the future are going to acknowledge what all believers affirm that the servant of Jehovah, the Messiah, Jesus, was crushed by God and God was pleased to crush Him, not because He was a blasphemer, but because He was a Savior, a guilt offering. A guilt offering. What is a trespass offering and a guilt offering? There were five main mosaic offerings, burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, and uh, transgression offering, guilt offering. They were offerings that dealt with sin. They were symbolic. This is not symbolic. This is the real offering for sin. That's why 1 John 2 says that He was the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction. No other offering could satisfy. Was God satisfied? Absolutely. And now God speaks. The confession is over. The confession is over in the middle of verse 10. And God begins to speak. And here's what God says. He will see His offspring. He will prolong His days. 
and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is God's validation This, this, is, this is affirmation. But look at what God says, first of all. He will see his offspring. What is that? He's dead. He's just literally been sent, as it were, to hell in our place under divine judgment. How is it that he will see his offspring? Uh, I'd like to see a few generations of my offspring... I'm just trying to survive to see the grandkids I've got. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm not going to see the next and the next and the next. When, when you die, you, you, that's it for us. We don't get to see our posterity, even our spiritual children. But it's different in his case. How is it that if he's dead, he could see his offspring? How is it that if he's cut off out of the land of the living... How, if he's cut off out of the land of the living, is he going to see the people that are in the land of the living? The answer is Sunday. He'll be back. The resurrection. And he will be raised to eternal life. He will prolong his days. He will live forever to see all his elect children, all those born into his family all those living forever in His presence. Prolong His days is kind of a Hebrew idea for long life. Well, His life is going to be long. It's going to be forever. So God says, I'm going to raise Him. I'm going to raise Him to eternal life. And I'm going to gather to Him all His offspring. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. What was the good pleasure of the Lord? To crush Him. To bruise Him. But that will turn out to prosper Him. It is because God found pleasure in crushing Him that He finds pleasure in His redeemed people. Salvation is what's being viewed here. Verse 11 then adds, As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see. He will see his posterity. The anguish of his soul. Um, that's kind of a familiar word. Travail, labor, birth, pain. It's like God viewing the cross in a childbirth metaphor, in his suffering there, like a suffering woman bringing forth a child, in Christ's suffering, he will see his offspring and be satisfied. God is satisfied by his atonement, and he is satisfied by the results. His spiritual offspring, the redeemed of the ages forever, his love, his bride, his sons and daughters, loving him, worshiping him, 
fellowshipping with Him, seeing Him in His eternal glory in heaven, and especially, especially Israel, His adulterous wife, restored. And here it is, and He will be satisfied. Do you understand that the whole drama of redemption working out in history is for the satisfaction of God? Everything is by Him and what? For Him. The servant's full joy and satisfaction comes from providing forgiveness, redemption, righteousness for his children by taking the full judgment of their sin in their place. What a day this is going to be for Israel when they understand all this. God validates it by saying, He will rise and He will be satisfied. Yahweh is the speaker. As a result of his, the anguish of His soul, He will see it and be satisfied by His knowledge. The righteous one, My servant, will justify the many as He will bear their iniquities. This is God saying He accomplished redemption. He accomplished redemption. The verbs change now from past to future when you get into verse 11. By His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. Now you have a prophecy from God of the coming justifying work of Christ. And by His knowledge means by our knowledge of Him, our knowledge of His saving work. Follow that. God says, by our knowledge of the righteous one, my servant, many will be justified. In other words, if you want to be justified, you have to understand the work of Christ. This is Romans 10. That, that is a, just a critical passage. In Romans 10... Paul expresses his heartache over Israel's unbelief. My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is their salvation because they have a, a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Uh, they, uh, not knowing about God's righteousness, seek to establish their own. They think God is less righteous than He is. They are more righteous than they are and so they can achieve righteousness on their own. That's not going to work. The only way you can ever be saved is by the knowledge of Him. And so in 10, he says this, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on Him in whom they haven't believed? How will they believe whom they haven't heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. Here is implied the Great Commission. By the knowledge of Him, the Righteous One, My servant, justification will come to many, as He will bear their iniquities. And then God again takes up this credible promise. I will allot him a portion with the great, 
and he will divide the booty with the strong. Let me just say, don't have time to dig into it, but the great and the strong are the redeemed. The great and the strong are the redeemed. Because he bore the sin of many, because he interceded for the transgressors, as it says later in verse 12, because he bore their iniquities, he will bring them into his presence to divide all the heavenly treasures with them. They are not of themselves either great or strong. They are not the mighty. They are not the great. But because of the work that Christ has done, they become that. This looks, I think, first of all at the millennial reign of Christ in His kingdom, and then, of course, all the eternal blessings that follow. Look at it the other way. When he says, I will allot him a portion with the great. The great is actually harabin in Hebrew. It means the many, the redeemed, those who have received salvation, the exalted ones, the elevated ones, the blessed ones. I, I will give him a portion with the great. It's a strange way to say it. You might think he would have said, I will give them a portion with him. But it's reversed. I will give him a portion with them. So that we literally become joint heirs with Christ. He, listen to it this way, shares heaven with us. The reason it's reversed is to make the point so dramatically. And he will divide the booty with the strong. What's the booty? All the treasures of salvation. All the things that God has prepared for those that love Him. All the transcendent blessings awaiting us in heaven. All the factors of our inheritance which is undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven for us. He will divide all of heaven's riches with us. We are going to receive a full inheritance. All because, as he closes out the words of God, he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and then interceded for the transgressors. That last line, that's what's going to get us to heaven. Not just what he did in the past but the fact that He secures our salvation by His current intercession. If the Lord took His eye off us, we'd perish. We'd perish. That's why in His high priestly prayer in John 17, He said, Father, um, I have kept those You have given Me. And as He anticipated the cross and being under judgment for a few hours, He said, Father, keep them while I'm suffering. It's not automatic. It is not automatic. You will get to heaven because He will keep you. This is His ministry of intercession.
He secures us to the end. Not passively. He secures us to the end actively. How active is He? He's in front of the throne of the Father interceding for us all the time against all the accusations. And if Christ is for us, what's the next line? Who can be against us? We will reign with Him on earth in the kingdom. And we'll start to share the booty, the treasures. We will receive all that heaven has and share it with Him. We'll get there. And nothing can make that not happen. Because our inheritance is undefiled and it is kept for us in heaven. And we're secured to that by the One who constantly ever lives to make intercession for us to bring us to glory. John 17 is the picture of that. The servant of Jehovah here goes from shame to glory, death to life, and takes believers with him all the way. We were with him when he died. We were in Him. We were in Him when He rose. We are in Him now, and He in us. As He lives, we live. As He ever lives, we ever live. We'll be with Him in His kingdom, be with Him forever in resurrection glory in heaven. This is a prophecy of Israel's salvation in the future. But at the same time, it is the theology of salvation for every age and every nation. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and sees Him for who He is and His work for what He did, will be saved. Lord, we again uh, just feel overwhelmed with the truth of Your Word and uh, the glory of Scripture. This is, uh, this is vast, far-reaching truth. What is amazing to us is uh, that it's our story. How can it be? It's our story. We sit here as insignificant people, just a drop, a drop of life, a breath, in a vast universe and in eternal history. And this is our story. How could it be that such grace could come to us? May our gratitude express itself in our loving obedience and proclamation of the glory of our Savior. We pray in His name. Amen.